can I really start a feud with any airline? Like, I do need to be careful in what I say here. Yes, yes, you absolutely could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. You're the 737X, but Christos. Name an airline. You could probably tell me if they operate 737. <laughs> I probably right. could, now. Just an airline. Southwest. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> probably is. I mean... So- So why should we be excited about the Singapore A380? I don't know. I like the A350. <laughs> so, wow. so, sorry, sorry. Go on, go wow. on. Mate, <laughs> thank you for cutting me off there, Ross. But Love you, Nick. Wait, wait. wait. That blew my eardrums. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Way too much. Live in Melbourne and across the aviation world, this is Radio Runway. That's it. You probably didn't expect to hear us back on the airwaves anytime soon, but we are here because we miss you guys. We miss you a lot, and uh, we, we've had enough. Our hiatus has come to an end, and we are back, aren't we, Nick? Yeah, we are back. It's just me and you today, Tom. That's um, it. I'm going to say there's probably no real excuse for our absence for however long we've been absent. Maybe <laughs> I'd say about five months, to be honest, or maybe four months. Been a while. Um, been a while. It's been a very long time. We've been busy, all three of us now on the shift work grind. So yeah, Christos, to get together. the only pilot yeah. is uh, the only one that ironically doesn't have a job in the aviation industry yet. He's getting there. Um, so as you can imagine, the grind for him is very real to get to that point. And uh, as Nick just said, yeah, Ross, uh, Nick and I all uh, working shift work um, in different operation centers in different parts of the aviation world. And as you imagine, that means that we can never get our shifts aligned so that we can have some time to chat together. But finally, Nick, we've uh, just gone, you know what? All four of us are members of the podcast and all four of us will feature on different episodes because... We need to bring you, the people, some great aviation content. And so here we are. That's right. That's right. And today's completely sort of off the cuff. I met Tom up a few days ago at Yeah My Goodness Glen Waverley. Shout out Yeah My Goodness Glen Waverley. And, you know, I just thought, how about me and you, Tom? We get the podcast up and running. We just make a completely off the cuff episode. No preparations involved. I have got no idea what we're going to be talking about today, but there has been so much that has been going on in the aviation sector. We jinxed the aviation since the start industry. of 2024. Yeah. It's insanity. We have so much to talk about today. And as I said before, no prior preparation whatsoever. So we'll see how <laughs> we go. Uh, no Ross, no Christos. Ross is in Hawaii at the moment. Shout out, Ross. Must be nice. Enjoy and your Honolulu Christos. Break. Yeah, that's it. And Christos is probably up in the air somewhere. I'd to imagine be honest. so. Cheers to you, Christos. Yeah. Raising your glass, mate. On that grind, as always. Respect. That's right. That's right. Well, I, I just want to start by saying we jinxed the aviation industry. We left and suddenly there was a catastrophe in Japan. There was a catastrophe in Portland. What is going on, man? Like, crazy stuff. Yeah, literally. Within the first week of 2024, we saw those news stories come out. And, you know, what happened in Japan was nobody expected it, to be honest. I mean, you think of Japan, you think of the aviation industry in Japan, you just think of Japan in general and the way they get around and they do things. They're so precise. You know, you don't expect these things to happen in Japan. Like, obviously, we've seen near misses last year in places like JFK and San Francisco. Mm. And, you know, you, you... 
if you're expecting something like that to happen, you're expecting something like that there. But in Japan, you know, they're so organized. And mm. it shows really, even though, you know, that happened in Japan, the fact that all the passengers got out of that A350, which was burning, by the way, mm. there was no fatalities, no serious injuries as far as I'm concerned. They all got out. That is nothing short of remarkable. I yeah. mean, it's bad news about the Coast Guard aircraft. It's particularly bad when you think about that Coast Guard aircraft being there only to provide humanitarian relief for yeah. the earthquakes that had happened a few days before. That was... Um, that's that's just I don't know what to say. It's just really unfortunate, and you know our thoughts and prayers go out to the families of those uh, who are on board that aircraft. But honestly, it just shows two things: the safety culture at Japan Airlines Insane. is absolutely incredible. Yeah, how they managed to pull that off, and I think that what's very interesting is with emergency exits and emergency procedures. As far as I'm concerned you're meant to evacuate the aircraft with half the slides deployed within a minute and a half. Mm. Whereas I think on the Japan Airlines flight, it took them 18 minutes to. And I think they were having some um, communication error between the sort of flight deck and the cabin crew. But nevertheless, look, people on there, they listened. Um, they behaved. I'm sure they left everything behind their carry-ons they probably took stuff like their phone which is which is fair enough if you're usually on your pocket or in the seat in front anyway so you just grab it and you leave high heel shoes off there were no sort of you know slides that were damaged from stuff like high heels or sharp objects it was obviously other than the time it took it was a textbook evacuation and i think mm. that's something that the aviation industry should look on and you know sort of look at this and say hey this is how stuff should be done. And it's funny you mentioned safety because I want to mention the new Qantas safety video, which has come under a lot of fire for being 10 minutes long and basically an advertisement for Qantas. Mm. And half of the destinations they show, they don't even fly to. I mean, they showed places like Casablanca, Helsinki. Like, they'll never fly there. I, <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> like, Morocco. You, you've watched that. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah. That's it. But I, I thought I, I genuinely thought it was a bit backwards. Um, <clears throat> like flight crew, uh, ground crew, head office personnel, everyone who's everyone uh, within corners has has watched that video and said, "What on earth?" Um, it, I mean, you're gonna have to start that safety video before doors are closed. You know, uh, no, yeah. no, air, sure. So uh, let's say busy apron like Sydney. No worries. It might take 10 minutes to taxi to the, to the runway, right? But where on earth amongst that entire safety video are cabin crew going to input their, you know, demonstrating the, the whistle or the light or the inflation mechanism? Like they're going to be standing on their feet in front of the entire you know, the entire uh, aircraft uh, full of passengers for 10 minutes. And there's going to be like two minute intervals between each individual section where they have to demonstrate something. It's going to be crazy. They're going to get sick and tired of standing there like just mindless waiting for the next portion where they actually have to be uh, uh, physically involved in the demonstration. It's crazy. It's crazy. It, it is absolutely crazy long. And I'm looking through the comments under that safety video 
and there's people who are like, yeah, I tuned out at like three minutes. I tuned out at four minutes, mm. which is so against the point of why this video exists. Exactly You're right. meant to watch the whole way right. through to see the exact procedures. And in the case of Japan, it's those words of, if there is an emergency exit, leave everything behind. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to just, just note- short messages like that, that'll get left Absolutely. out within the, the swarm of advertising that oh, have done mate. within that safety video they, they they're trying to like travel bait in the middle of their in the middle of their safety briefing what is going on man yeah look, like there's look uh, there's being innovative and and quirky with your safety videos like with their new zealand you know um with the rugby team one or with the um, lord of the rings one or even the previous Qantas one with uh, showing the generations of different aircraft you know but the yeah, point's still great one. the point's still absolutely great the one. point's got across uh, in a timely manner and in a, in a um, in an obvious manner where people could still follow what was happening, and 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 that's all well and good, and that's that's a level of creativity that's acceptable within a safety element of uh, of travel. But uh, ten minutes for what is essentially a giant advertisement is different. That's not creativity. That's that's diluting the point of safety, in my opinion. That's yeah. No, I hundred percent agree with you. And I was looking back. 10 years ago at the 2014 safety video because they released a safety video in 2014 and it was literally half the length and so it should be these safety videos should be about five six minutes long you know obviously you've got to convey the messages across and i understand having a bit of fun my my personal favorite safety video now i never flew on this airline i know ross has and i think you'll agree with me on this is the virgin america safety video and watching that last virgin america flight the people on board that aircraft watching that safety video. And by the end of that song, by the way, for those who don't know, Virgin America safety video was basically made into a song that rhymed with, you know, all sorts of different things, the lyrics that rhymed. It was very catchy. But towards the end of that safety video, the entire cabin was singing the lyrics to the song, which was absolutely insane. Like, that is an engaging safety video. It's fun and people actually want to watch it. I mean... For me, Virgin America sets the standard of a great safety video that's engaging that people want to watch. Props to Virgin America. Well done. That's pretty cool. Not too many categories you'd pull out uh, Virgin America and say, well done. Like, you guys are top of the class. (laughs) But safety video, safety video, top of the class. Hey, hey, speaking of of how that relates back to the jail incident, um, I do want to talk about. Obviously, you mentioned the the level of preparedness of that, that cabin crew is pretty incredible, despite the malfunctioning slides and the and the slightly lengthier time of getting everyone out and evacuated. Everyone got off mm-hmm. safely, um, and Jell uh, noted after the incident. Well, I mean, any reporting outlet that's aviation based took a deep dive into the safety procedures and processes in place at Jell, and I noted I noticed that uh, cabin crew. Whether it's long haul, domestic, no matter what, um, a gel will have, and I'm sure I'm sure this is the same for a lot of air, um, different uh, airlines. They have a 30 second review before passengers board, where they make themselves familiar with uh, all the doors, all the exits, the um, the opening or uh, emergency uh, evacuation mechanisms within those doors, those exits, and they they assess outside conditions so they know. Uh, realistically where the most appropriate evacuation points are 
that comes in very handy with an incident like this. And, and obviously we see it firsthand working. But I also just thought, not I haven't really seen this be talked about yet. I'd be interested to know, would it have been this? This is a wide-body aircraft. Wide-body aircraft are traditionally used for long-haul international services. But this was used on the Sapporo Express, right? That's from the, the north of Japan down to Tokyo. It's a three-hour flight. You've got cabin crew that have done a three-hour domestic sector. Possibly have done other flying before. I'm not going to take that away. Let's say, for instance, it's it might be their only flight for the day, or it might be you know Sapporo return goes up to Tokyo, comes mm. back. That's still six hours, versus a standard uh, wide body international flight, which you're looking at minimum six hours, probably longer on one flight. That's quite draining. You don't have a reset period in between or something like that. And you've also got passengers that are fresh that are, have only been on on board the aircraft for three hours. I would love to see. Um, how the dynamic would have changed if passengers had been on board that aircraft for 12 plus hours on a long haul flight, Mm, the cabin crew had done service and and are coming to the end of a very fatiguing shift. If the emergency response procedures were undertaken at the same level of professionalism, efficiency, all of the the standard metrics for whether or not the evacuation is successful and, and, and done properly. I wonder if, it, it actually aided JAL that it was a short-haul domestic flight rather than an international long-haul flight. Yeah, no, that's definitely a good point to bring up. I think it would have affected the passengers more in terms of their ability to evacuate as quickly as they could rather than the crew. Definitely. Um, as I said before, I have absolute faith in JAL, in their safety culture, and I'm sure they have got... Um, a great sort of fatigue management system in place whereby the crew that are on, uh, they're not fatigued. If they've done long haul sectors, they've had enough space between flights to have rest. They have the ability to call in fatigue, to to call in sick if they don't feel 100% well to operate that flight, which it should be. And in place should be airlines that have standbys that have backups Mm. to obviously bring in in the situation that that happens you know it's all about being prepared it's all about having backups um and a proper airline should get that all done which i believe jl would have done because i think the way that they handled the situation literally two days after the uh incident occurred JL put on their Instagram page that they would be uh, refunding slash rebooking people onto um, flights with no charge if they felt they wanted to for the next sort of three, four months as a, as a direct result of what has happened with that flight that landed in Haneda and uh, unfortunately crashed and sort of burnt out. That That's, you know. Yeah. I, oh. I can't think of any other airline that, that would do something like that, to be honest. Shout out Michael in, O'Leary. In, <laughs> well, that's it, yeah. Michael <laughs> O'Leary, you'd be just lucky to to get on board a Ryanair aircraft. You know, you're only paying 10 euro. Yeah, I know, you know literally. How many yeah. fewer people queuing to go to the toilet? Charge them. First A350 Holos as well. That's another thing. Uh, a lot for Airbus to unpack in, uh, in that. Seeing a real-world example of uh, their frame you know dissipating 
Yeah, look, um, and that's obviously uh, one of the features of having a composite frame is the is the flammability of it. Mm. That would be higher than that of a standard um, aluminium sort of airframe. But look, I think the airframe held up well. I think in the end, it was actually easier for the firefighters and safer, should I say, for the firefighters to let the actual airframe burn out rather yeah. than to actually try to save it. Yeah. But I think the good thing is is that the interior, for, for a while at least, was kept somewhat intact. You know, you looked at the the video footage of the passengers who had obviously filmed flames outside, but on the inside, it looks, you know, just like any other A350. Mm. Dark cabin, obviously, but everything looks intact, which is uh, great to see from Airbus. Yeah, it is. It is. They're taking quality control seriously, which can't be said about Boeing. And I want to shift over now to what happened literally, I think it was literally a week after what had happened with the Japan Airlines A350-900. And that was yeah. the Alaskan Airlines 737 MAX 9 and the door blew out. Now, for context, for you listeners out there, the Alaskan Airline, well, any 737 MAX 9 has a total of 10 emergency exit doors. And these particular emergency exit doors on the Maxinon that blew out was on the left, and it was behind the wing. Now, this exit door itself wasn't active. Now, the way I can explain it is, is these particular exit doors are there because if an airline particularly a low-cost carrier such as Ryanair, want to configure their 737 in a more densely packed configuration. So obviously they can fit more passengers in, drive the fares down. You know, you can have it in, but certain requirements require a ratio between passengers and exit doors, which has forced Boeing to put in those two extra exit doors. But on an airline like Alaska Airlines that don't have a high configured uh 737 those exit doors aren't required which means that those doors even though they look like doors on the outside they should be disabled and from the inside of the aircraft they look as though there's no door there it's literally just a blank panel as if you know you'd gotten unlucky and you got a window seat without a window and what had happened is they'd found out that some of the screws in the door were loose not just to Alaska Airlines throughout all sorts of different airlines. I think Turkish found them. I think United found them. And the FAA had to ground the 737 MAX 9 for a few weeks. Mm. They're back flying now. Um, I am interested to know where the Alaskan Airlines 737 MAX order came from. Was that a pure order from them or did they steal those slots from another aircraft, like the production slots? Because it seems strange to me that Boeing would build an aircraft that Alaskan Airlines have already... Uh, said outright we're going to use it in this particular type of configuration that doesn't require these extra two doors Um, and so with that in mind we don't we don't need those doors and then they'd go and add that option I mean maybe Alaskan what did they say that they wanted the option to be able to change the configuration down the line if they retrofitted like what's the vibe like why why has Boeing still built those doors in there that's my question 
No, it's very interesting there because um, so obviously we have the Max 8. And then for those Avgeeks out there, we have the Max 8 200, which as far as I'm concerned is used exclusively on Ryanair, which the 200 meaning 200 seats on board. And that aircraft needed the extra doors because obviously uh, regulation states that there's a particular ratio between passenger numbers and exit doors. They had to put in those additional doors, but the standard 737 MAX 8 doesn't have those doors. And for some reason, on every single MAX 9, regardless of whether you've got a high-density configuration of, say, 220 seats on board or whether you put one seat on board, it'll still have those exit doors there. But whether they are active depends on, obviously, what configuration you've gone with. So they so build that as a standard and then say, all right, airlines, it's up to you, basically. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. So on the, in the case of Alaskan Airlines, it's not active. It's, it's, it's just there. It's completely disabled. It doesn't even operate as a door. That's like pretty Literally, dumb. on the inside of the aircraft, you could be sitting right next to the exit door and you would not know that a door's right next to you. I mean, for someone like you and me, you'd be a bit annoyed because you've just booked a window seat, realizing there's no window there. But mm. you wouldn't know, as a regular passenger, that you're sitting right next to an exit door. That's pretty And dumb. I don't know why they've done that with a Max 9, because they don't do it on the Max 8. But on the Max 9, it's commonality. Yeah. Regardless of what you put in it, that exit door is going to be there. But obviously, if you go beyond the threshold, those exit doors behind the wing, those additional two need to be activated. And I, I, look, it goes without saying. It's probably people listening saying, that's not the point. The point is that the engineers fitted the bolts uh, loosely to the, the door frame. I'm just really bringing up this point because it's clear that um, now that everyone knows that these sort of door cavities exist within the aircraft that I think it's well within um, our rights to question why the door cavities exist on the aircraft that uh, aren't configured for that where the airline has, uh, you know, indicated that they have no intention to retrofit to fit in more seats. Like, why why are the doors there in the first place? You eliminate the chance of there being loose bolts fitted to those particular doors. If they, I mean, look, it's beside the point. Like, it, it is genuinely, um, it's a it's a hierarchical, uh, almost bureau, bureaucratic issue within within Boeing that means that these engineers are, you know, being lackluster in their quality and safety insurance uh, safety assurance ac- across the aircraft. It, you know, it, those loose bolts could realistically be at any point of the aircraft, not just. Uh, those door frames. It just so happens that they are within those door frames because uh, circumstantially, I'm assuming to do with the air engineers that were fitting those particular aircraft at the time, it could just as easily have been a different point in the aircraft. It just so happened to be in a a benign point of the aircraft uh, that caused the issue. Uh, And so uh, I think... I still think it's uh, it's a question that should be, to be put to Boeing. Why can't they realistically create a t- uh, tailor engineered aircraft for uh, each airline, uh, depending on the uh, number of uh, seats that have been fitted to the aircraft? I, I don't I don't get that one. So, yeah, obviously with Boeing, it comes down to costs. Uh, 
you know, costs above safety, as we talked about in episode two, I believe, uh, where mm. there's a saving in cost, they will take that option. And as we've seen in the past decade, that has been at the expense of safety. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not just talking about the 737 MAX, which I will say this incident Boeing got lucky with. Oh, that yeah. nobody was sitting at that seat or otherwise they would have literally been sucked out of the aircraft. They were also lucky that the door that had fallen out didn't land on, say, a, a bunch of people or on top of a house. It landed in someone's backyard. They're lucky also that the plane was not above 14,000 feet, so that the uh, when the doors blew out... There wasn't an issue of a depressurization that, that would cause, you know, hypoxia or lack of oxygen. They didn't have to dive suddenly and rapidly down to a breathable atmosphere. They could sort of glide down to lower and lower and lower, you know, because obviously we're still in, in the ascent phase of the, of the flight as well. That's very. There were so many factors that worked in Boeing's favor. But could you America? Uh, could you imagine, right? American citizens dying on American soil on an American aircraft due to the shortfalls of an American manufacturer. Every single factor of this crash is American, which means that yeah. I, I just feel like the FAA would go nuts if someone died as a part of this incident versus something like uh, the, the Lion Air incident or uh, was it Sri Lankan, the other one? No, it was Ethiopian. Oh, sorry. oh yeah, Ethiopian, right? Where... where, where yeah. It's not American citizens. It's American design, sure. It's American manufacturer, but it's not on American soil. It's not American citizen. You know that no one can be held to account in America outside of the manufacturer. Here, oh my gosh, there was so much more at stake for Boeing and they just got so unbelievably lucky. It could be so much worse. Well, yeah. I mean, as you were saying before, I mean, what was the what was the first initial reaction of Boeing when these incidents occurred? They were to blame the airline. Mm. They were to blame Lion Air. They were to blame Ethiopian, saying that their standards were not at the level of, you know, say the FAA or as Boeing would hope for. Later, you know, we found out that Boeing's uh, sort of quality control isn't there. Yeah. You know, that's well, in the case of the Max Eight, it wasn't the quality control. It was the it was it was management. It was oversight of safety. They're the same MCATs. guys that were that were engineering the aircraft, then checking their own work and saying, "Yep, looks good to me." <laughs> but in the case of what's happened here in the Max Nine, it comes down to quality control, and this yep. is not the first time that we've seen issues of quality control at Boeing. I mean, look at the Dreamliner; that thing is riddled with quality control issues. <laughs> the, you know, the, the seven eight seven ten Dreamliner. It's got like hardly any orders worldwide, and and. Uh, it's pretty clear why. It's pretty clear why. Yeah. It's going to be interesting now. Um, mm, there's yep. obviously been a lot of publicity in the news again with the Boeing 737 MAX. It's very interesting now how regular people who know very little about aviation are now suddenly going out and sort of asking questions and saying, is this a 737 MAX? Is this aircraft safe to fly? You know, uh, should I be worried? that I'm flying on a 737 MAX tomorrow. Yeah, everyday people that like know nothing about aviation, like you said, it's crazy. And suddenly suddenly it, now they do know at least something. They've heard of the 737. I doubt there's many people in the world that are connected to via the internet, uh, social media, the news, that haven't heard of the 737, you know? Everyone's heard of the 737 MAX. 
everyone's heard of Boeing, everyone's sort of questioning them at the moment, which I think is fair enough, to be honest. Oh, how the famous um, phrase is turned on its head. If it ain't Boeing, I'm not going. Oh, if it's Boeing, I'm not going. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's that's literally it. I mean, it is such a shame. And you've got airlines now like United that are reconsidering their entire order for the 737 MAX 10. Um, oh, yeah, did we speak about those four, five aircraft that had loose bolts in the exact same cavities of the aircraft? On uh, United Airlines, uh, United Airlines aircraft, we saw that. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, Crazy. it was. It wasn't just United. There was. It was a bunch of different airlines as well. It was. It, Boeing admitted that there was a quality control issue on their end. Uh, no the, the, fair play to Boeing. They did it relatively quickly, unlike last time. Um, <laughs> but I think. I think. I, I just think they need to sort of pull their heads into together. Yeah. Um, the FAA, obviously. They, they're taking no chances with this particular aircraft, grounding it immediately. Um, and I think it's just a lack of oversight from the FAA as well. Um, yeah, I think I think as much as we're going to blame Boeing for what's going on, I think, you know, the FAA needs to, you know... It's so weird. I thought they would have put way the more oversight authority. into it. Yeah, I thought it would have thought they put so much more... Uh, oversight into it following the 737 MAX incidents and the se- I, I, I thought the 787 program was under heavy scrutiny as well. Like, what 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 has happened? I mean, these aircraft were built... I mean, this particular aircraft where the incident occurred was built after the fact of the 737 MAX incidents when the FAA supposedly had greater oversight over, these, over quality control and yet still this happened? It just goes to show, though, how precise and how insanely... Uh, accurate and and airtight the construction of these machines have to be at the same time though how the hell are european manufacturers having no issues it's clear to me they take it pretty seriously i mean it yeah airbus is airbus has a okay look i was talking about this with uh, scotty boy the other day shout out dad yeah and we were talking about, well, I was talking to him about how, uh, he, uh, we were talking about the Airbus versus Boeing and, and the backlog of orders and, and how obviously Airbus has a seven-year wait for the A320, A321 family across their factories and they're trying to upscale factory production. And mm. my dad was uh, talking about how, at the moment, the only reason Boeing still has retained orders on the 737 family is quite simply because... There are some airlines out there that um, the the they de- the only way they're going to stay afloat is uh, by depending on time critical orders, and Boeing can get them out quicker than Airbus can because they have less of a backlog. Although <laughs> now I question that it be- because the quality control will probably push that time scale out for for the production of these aircraft as better quality assurance takes place. But my gosh, man, all this emphasis on American made this. American made that. Um, well, that's I, right. Yeah. Well, well, that that that's right, and and it, and it comes down to cost as mm. well. You know, Boeing after the seven three seven Max eight fiasco with obviously the Lion Air and the Ethiopian, you bet your life that Boeing were giving airlines significant discounts to just lure Best customers belief. in and say, "Hey, buy this aircraft." 
It's now been heavily scrutinized by the FAA. It's been heavily checked by them. It is supposedly the safest aircraft flying, which obviously now we know that was a bit of a lie. <laughs> White-faced. But now we've got to look... We, we don't even have to look that far. Let's look at the, the 737 MAX family. We've got the MAX 7. We've got the MAX 10. The MAX 7, at least, was meant to be certified in April of this year. And that's certainly not going to happen. Same with the MAX 10. They were looking to get an exemption from the FAA, as far as I'm concerned, to prevent the engines from overheating uh, a system in place. And from what I understand, Boeing have revoked that exemption. They will work on that properly. And I don't think we will see the MAX 7 and the MAX 10 for another few years to come, which is bad news for airlines that rely heavily on the 737 family, yeah. such as Ryanair, such as Southwest, such yep. as United. People that have heavily invested in the program uh, in the long term and uh, hoping to see that infrastructure either uh, remain in existence or, or upscaled so that uh, they have better assurance over the long term uh, longevity of their fleet. And now that doesn't exist for them. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, it it's... exists, but uh, sorry, it exists, but it's um, it's there's more there's more hoops to jump through, which honestly there should be, but at the same time, um, if you promise efficiency on the basis that the hoops aren't going to get, yeah, aren't going to multiply that you have to jump through, and then suddenly things like this happen and everything like you said that you've invested in, um, it sort of uh, <laughs> everything you've invested in. Uh, in a program that was supposedly efficient is now no longer going to promise efficiency, uh, more quality. Um, I guess you can take some assurance, though, in knowing that your aircraft are not going to fall out of the sky from now on, hopefully. Yeah. Well, I want to move on. I think we've talked a bit about now the 737 MAX. I want to move on to something uh, a bit better, a bit more sort of, a, a sort of a sort of brighter tone, should I say? Up, upbeat, a bit more upbeat. Yeah, I can't talk properly, but I want to move us back to Australia and the influx of, I guess, new airlines, new carriers that are big, that are going to come down to our shores. Now, I want to start off by talking about Turkish Airlines coming to Hell Melbourne. Yeah. I think that is absolutely massive. What it a has win. been years in the making literally years i remember being in school and this was a long time ago for me this was like over seven years now looking at the news in school on my laptop obviously not studying when i should be but <laughs> i remember seeing speculation of turkish airlines bringing their aircraft down to either Melbourne or Sydney and this has been years in the making and finally we have a date I believe the initial date was Huge. March the 12th um, it's actually been moved forward now to March the 1st it's a bit sort of hairy the timeline um, so they'll be flying between uh, Melbourne and Istanbul through Singapore you know you can obviously book them oh, as right. individual transit. legs um, I didn't realize it was a transit. I don't know why I thought it was direct. I don't. That's so stupid because it's so far. <laughs> but yeah, no, they want to do direct eventually, but they just don't have the capability. Well, they don't have an aircraft in their fleet with the capability. They don't to have do Project so. Sunrise, huh? <laughs> that's right. They don't have Project. They do want it eventually, but 
I, I believe they'll be using a sort of ULR version of the A350-1000 like Qantas have to do this particular flight. But in the meantime, uh, they will be doing a stopover in Singapore. Now, as I said, you can book these as individual legs. You can fly between Melbourne and Singapore, return, and obviously Singapore to Istanbul. They do have that fifth freedom right, uh, which is cool. really cool to see. Uh, more competition on that Melbourne to Singapore route, which I dare say is the most competitive international route out of Melbourne. You do dare say. I do dare say. Um, it's very interesting how it all pans out. I think the first few flights will be operated on the 777-300ER. Then over the next few weeks, it'll be the Dreamliner. And then after that, it'll be the A350-900 for yeah. the foreseeable future. It's like future. boss levels, isn't it? It's like start at, start at the first boss and then work your way through. Yeah, you know? literally, literally. And I think it goes from... Okay, I don't think it goes from worst aircraft to best. I'd, I'd still rather fly on a triple seven over a Dreamliner. Personally, I think the Dreamliner is a very cramped aircraft to sit in, particularly mm. in the economy. Uh, but I like the fact how we're getting an A three fifty down here. That is yeah. possibly my second favorite aircraft to fly on, behind the A three eighty. My think favorite aircraft, A three fifty one thousand. I still haven't flown on an A three fifty, let alone a one thousand. But I will. I will. Hey, speaking um, of the 737 Max, we're going to talk about Bonza. First year anniversary. Uh, obviously, they got their flonzers since last time we spoke to them. Uh, what, last, one, last time we spoke together. Uh, it, that's how long it's been. They, they got their, their flare aircraft in the, in the Bonza colors. Well, half Bonza Flonza. Is that, is that actually what we're calling it now, the Flonza? Well, that's apparently what uh, the media have named it. It's not just Ross. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The Flonza. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting aircraft. Um, I've been very up close and personal with that aircraft, and it's literally a Bonza sticker on top of the existing flare titles. Crazy. Um, I guess they are a low cost carrier, right? They got to shave costs wherever they can to to sort of push them onto the passengers in terms of savings. Yeah, um, it makes me wonder um, the viability of Triple Seven Partners as a backer. <laughs> oh, let's yeah. just put a sticker on. Like we can't really afford to. You know, and, and Tim Jordan did say the other day, actually, Tim Jordan, the CEO, well, the guy behind Bonza right now, and he was saying, realistically, they're not too far from break-even, which I found very interesting. Yeah, they've only been in operation for a year now, and already they're claiming, yeah, we're pretty close to break-even, maybe even profitability soon. There you go. That That's interesting because, um, obviously, I wish them the best of luck. But I, but I mm. question their business model in terms Same. of the, the, the routes that they flew, which, which, which were some really obscure routes from, from very small towns to very small towns Legit. on an aircraft that's actually not very small at all. You know, Boeing 737 MAX making it profitable, but somehow by the sounds of the words of Tim Jordan, they have. So yeah. credit to them, you know. Yeah, I don't uh, quite understand that. But yeah. Um Moving on with expansion in Australia, a few days ago, I read on the internet that American Airlines will be sending their 787-9 to Brisbane from Dallas-Fort Worth. That's actually Brisbane. Brisbane. For the Americans. Yeah. <laughs> to from from Dallas-Fort Worth, which is... What? A comp- it's, which is a move that I did not expect... We For heard, a legacy carrier that flies mainstream routes, 
That's not exactly the most mainstream route. <laughs> it's not the most mainstream route, but it is not served. They see profitability, I guess. It's not served. It's a massive hub for American Airlines. And I think it's just strengthening a partnership between Qantas and American Airlines, which currently really only exists internationally anyway between Mm. Sydney and LAX. And I think as far as American Airlines are concerned, I always say, you know, why can't they come down to Melbourne? But Qantas already do a flight from um, Melbourne to LAX. Also, I think they do on one to, don't they do Mel- want Melbourne to DFW as well, or is that seasonal? They have done it, definitely. No, they still do it now. They yeah. uh, they still do it now. I, it's not a it's not a seasonal flight. It it, it happens oh, yeah. uh, year round. It's not daily. Um, I think it's about four times weekly. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it is. It isn't daily like the uh, like uh, QF ninety six ninety five Melbourne to LAX. That that is daily. Um, yeah, no, it, it won't be daily as well with um, with American Airlines. They'll go down to Brisbane a few times a week, but it'll be really good for the people of Brisbane to have another carrier linking them to the US other than Qantas and United, which have really picked up the slack in yeah. terms of connecting Brisbane across the Pacific. I mean... I mean, it's it's bad from Qantas, you know. They only operate one flight out of Brisbane, from Mel- from from Brisbane to LAX. I don't know why I said out of Brisbane from Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, boy. I just keep thinking about Melbourne Airport. I can't get my can't get my head out of that place. But from Brisbane to LAX on an A three thirty two hundred, how that happens to this Blech. day is absolutely insane. I mean. I think pre-COVID, I mean, definitely pre-COVID, that thing used to be on a 747-400. I think at one stage it was on a Dreamliner, but now it's on an A330. Disgusting. That is absolutely insane. And now you're looking at United, which are doing, I think, daily flights from Brisbane to San Francisco and four or five weekly flights from Brisbane to LAX at the moment. It is the summer peak. It'll probably ramp down. Yeah. As they generally do across Australia in Sydney, you know they pack up the Houston flights in Melbourne. The um, the triple seven will go back to a Dreamliner on the San Francisco flights, and the LAX flights will go back down to three times weekly. Oh, yeah. so that's a really... pretty, that's a bigger shift than we're giving it credit for. No, it is. Um, United is the biggest airline flying between Melbourne. Uh, sorry, Australia. And the US, based on the number of flights that have obviously departing and the number of seats available and the number of ASKs. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's just a fact. But actually, oh, actually, no. Speaking of uh, route competition, we spoke a few episodes back, probably about a year ago, about Korean Air flying into and out of Brisbane, right? Yeah, they um, still do that. We see um, a friendly Australian carrier, a low-cost carrier, mind you, deciding to come in and steal some of that sea revenue, my friends. We have Jetstar that have officially started Brisbane to Incheon, South Korea, as of literally a few days ago. Uh, so there's some competition there. And that's there's supposedly low-cost fares as well versus Korean Air, which is a full-service legacy carrier. That's 
That's pretty decent for Brisbane. Uh, you know, a bit of uh, supposedly serving different markets, obviously, low cost versus legacy. But at the same time, like, hey, that brings some price competitiveness into the into a fair competitive, uh, fair competition into the uh, the landscape there in Brisbane uh, towards South Korea. So that's pretty cool. I've got, got to say, um, it's good to see. And then the same thing also, uh, Jetstar is uh, starting Brisbane to, well, I mean, they've been doing Brisbane to Narita for a while. It was originally Coolangatta to Narita, Gold Coast to Narita. Uh, uh, I remember it, that it was reported that the, the um, landing fees and the actual bay fees got too high in Coolangatta. They started basically calling Jetstar's bluff and saying, you can afford to pay this and this. And Jetstar went, nah, screw you, we're going to Brizzy. And now, obviously, they share uh, root competition with Qantas, their, their daddy. <laughs> um, daddy. <laughs> daddy Qantas. Uh, and so that that exists there. Um, wow, well, there was another one, Brisbane to Incheon that just started. Brisbane to Kicks, Brisbane to um, Osaka just started as well, which is another interesting one. Is there? I don't think there's another airline that does Brisbane to Osaka at the moment, right? I don't think so. Nah, nah, um, nah. It'd just be Jetstar because none of the Japanese airlines fly to Brisbane. They mm. they only fly to Melbourne and Sydney. I think that region is very much underserved in as as a, as a whole. Um, particularly South Korea. I mean, for a long, long time, the only way to get direct from Australia to South Korea was either through... Your, your main hub was through Sydney. Now, obviously, they had Korean Daily, they had Asian Daily, they had Qantas, and then obviously you go to Brisbane, you got a few times weekly with uh, Korean Air. There's nothing out of Melbourne un- until recently where Asiana are doing these little trial flights from December to February on their 350 twice a week. Um, you know, they bring their 350 down, goes straight up to Incheon, which I think is, I think it's been going well for them personally in terms of the passenger loads, in terms of the amount of people um, that actually want to fly direct between Melbourne and Korea. I think there's the, 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 there's a lot more sort of um, publicity in terms of tourism now, in terms of visiting South Korea. There's a lot of business in South Korea mm, true. Um, to be done between Australia um, and obviously South Korea, as I was saying. Uh, I, I think that route would be pretty competitive. I wouldn't be surprised after this supposed trial period that Asiana say, hey, look, we might make this Asiana flight a permanent fixture and we might make it three times daily. Uh, three times weekly, so not three Damn, times three daily. times daily is crazy. <laughs> They're reaching Emirates scale. That's crazy. Reaching Emirates scale. It's funny you mention Emirates because in the heat of the whole Qatar situation, in the heat of the whole airlines not being able to fly yeah, into Yeah, actually Australia. refresh us on that. Refresh us on, on the basics of what happened. We talked about a previous episode, but for those joining us in the new year, what happened between Qatar and the federal government of Australia? What happened there? Well, I don't think there's been any uh, further progression since we talked about it last, but the whole premise of it was that Qatar were looking for additional, uh, you know, additional slots at airports, but the bilateral agreement did not allow them to fly into Australia more than they currently can already do, which is why they do 
silly things like flying to Adelaide with basically an empty flight just so they can get around that bilateral agreement and they can serve Melbourne double daily. Um, to this day, they still haven't um, actually been able to further expand into Australia, not because Qatar don't want to. They really do want to. It's a very lucrative market for them. But the fact that the Australian government continues to, to deny them additional slots I guess, within the bilateral agreement in terms of how many times a week they're allowed to fly into, into the ports that they want to, by the way. I think it's absolutely absurd how the Australian government go to Qatar and say, oh, you can fly to Australia. Why don't you fly to, you know, Cairns? Or why don't you fly to Gold Coast? Like, come what? off it. What? Come off it. You're thinking with your head or something. Like, I, I, I don't know what they're doing. When they say those sorts of things, like it's baiting, it's, it's baiting, really. But it's so stupid. In, the light, in light of that whole situation, we obviously know that Emirates has a massive partnership with Qantas, and in the last week, they have announced that Brisbane will go double daily on the three hundred and eighty. So currently, they are at a daily A380 and a daily 777, that daily 777 will bump up to a daily 380. And in light of that news, the Emirates Lounge in Brisbane has reopened again. Uh, yeah, refurbed. Which, which, is it refurbed? Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Refurbed. I was reading about it yesterday. Well, I imagine if it's out for that long, they, they must have done something with it. Yeah, you'd, yeah, you'd think, yeah. And Perth is going double daily as well from single daily. So they will go from that single daily A380 to a daily A380 and a daily 777. And I just think that is an absolute slap to an airline like Qatar's face who are trying to get (laughs) just additional little slots in Sydney, little slots in Brisbane and Emirates just come out and they're like, you know what? We're just going to add an extra seven flights into Perth because we can. Mm. Because our bilateral agreement allows for that which is absolute insanity. Um, It'll be interesting to see how the government reacts to new players on the market, such as Riyadh Air, Mm. in terms of how how many uh, times they're allowed to fly into the major ports in Australia uh, a a week. It'll be very interesting as to sort of how that pans out. And maybe, I don't know, maybe even an airline like Saudi will come to Australia. Wouldn't that be amazing? Spot. What's going on with Spot? No, well, I think I think the aviation market in India is a very interesting one. Um, obviously, Air India have taken delivery of their first A350-900, which I think is a real turning point for the airline. It's, it's you know, it's... Nice delivery. It is a very nice delivery, but I think it's, it's, it's an aircraft and a product that's more in line with competing with the Gulf carriers. I think Air India of the past, you know, being owned by the government, it's been pretty poorly run. The state of the airline hasn't been great. I think the acquisition by Tata Group, privatization of that company, having a new CEO of Campbell Wilson, who used to be a former exec of Singapore Airlines, they are really doing their best job in terms of revitalizing that airline, bringing aviation creating creating more accessibility uh, to the people um, in terms of aviation in India, connecting them throughout the world, connecting them within different parts of India. And I think the way it's heading 
the Middle Eastern carrier should be worried about airlines such as Air India because they really are a big competitor to what they do, which is that massive international hub and spoke operation, which I do not believe with the rise of Project Sunrise will ever sort of dissipate. I think um, I think everything you said just then, I think that's the perfect summary. I don't have anything to add to that. That's like the perfect summary of the Indian aviation market. I think the only real thing I wanted to talk about with SpiceJet in particular, being a low-cost carrier within uh, India, is that um, they've been having some real troubles financially. Like they came close. Yeah. Their share price dropped heavily after they got in a court battle with some engine lessers uh, regarding uh, uh, unpaid. Um, well, yeah. Well, essentially, it was claimed that SpiceJet didn't pay for some of the engines they were using on their aircraft. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, they really struggled to raise capital at one point, uh, and they were looking like there was a chance at uh, liquidation or, or bankruptcy before the the great boom even had considered to begin in terms of the aviation market. Um, but they got through it. The Indian court, uh, the court in Delhi uh, said four mil is enough. Pay them four mil. They then went on to raise a huge amount of uh, capital through Celestial, Celestial Aviation, um, Alterna Aircraft, Aircastle. <clears throat> and now they have one of the best share prices that they've had in their history. It's crazy. It's it's so up and down because that was only what four and a half five months ago. This was all unfolding, and then now it's like, oh damn. Okay, never mind. Back back in the uh, driver's seat for a SpiceJet, and like you said, it just falls in perfectly with the rest of the India and aviation market. Um, Air India having a massive boom. Um, I've got to experienced drivers in the driver's seat, and they are clearly making all the right uh, moves. Pulling the trigger on the right decisions, I'm keen to see where it lands. And you know what? the The pilot market will be insane in India. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. It, it'll be insane everywhere. You know, aviation continues to grow annually. You know, it, look back at three years ago, we we questioned the viability of the aviation industry, whether it would return back to it's former glory, if I say so. But it has now, and it's going beyond that. And even with the prices that we're seeing at the moment, which are, which are as high as we've ever seen, mm. the load factors, the passenger load factors on these aircraft through are the high. Roof, through the roof. That the, that, that, that the cargo throughput has been insane. I mean, airlines are making so much money. I mean, in an interview, I can't remember who he made it with, Michael O'Leary said, I think it was on CNBC, he has more money than he knows what to do with. Yeah. Because they make so much money. Yeah. And also, um, I guess the best way I would describe it to our listeners who don't truly understand the uh, impact the aviation market is, or the turning point that is currently taking place in the aviation market is during COVID, think of the aviation industry as a free flowing dam right, with water constantly going out the taps down into the valley. And the water is the demand within the market. The dam itself is the industry. And any water that gets through, that's demand that's served, right? That's the, those are seats that are filled um, based on the, the amount of people that want to fly. During COVID, those taps were shut, all right? And that water started to build up in that dam, reach max capacity. The demand 
for or the or the, the um, desire for air travel increased exponentially. Not necessarily demand, but desire. Uh, and then come the time for the aviation industry to open up again post-COVID, as those taps opened up, there's too much water to fit through such narrow taps. And uh, we need those taps to to grow and to be wider, to let more water through, uh, to, to lower the level of that dam because there's just so much demand and we can't, and the airlines being the taps can't fill that demand right now. Um, and so the, the dam's still pretty full. It's still pretty damn full. <laughs> pretty damn full. Um, and I don't, I don't, people like the Australian federal government, for example, are not exactly helping that by denying Qatar at those extra slots within Australia because that's a demand not served. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and there's also other factors that are keeping those taps narrow. Obviously, um, price gouging, you know, stuff like that. Different airlines charging charging more because that they, they know that they control the amount of capacity available. So Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah, there's that. There's also fuel costs, the big push to uh, push aviation SAF. into a more sustainable industry with the with the likes of SAF. And obviously SAF doesn't come cheap. Sustainable result, aviation fuel, for those wondering. Yeah, sustainable aviation fuel. Um, it, it doesn't come cheap. Production is very low. I, th- I think something. I, th- I think the cost of SAF is something along the lines of three point five times the uh, cost of conventional jet fuel. And obviously, airlines will not absorb that cost. They will obviously pass that on. Um, there's there's a lot of things, and I think we'll we'll touch on these things in greater depth in another episode because I'm I'm very conscious of time, and we've been talking for a bit of time now. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I, I'd like to think, you know, we've done a pretty decent job at wrapping up the, the key events that have happened while we've been off air. Now, obviously, there's been more stuff that's happened. I think one thing that we forgot to talk about was the delivery of the A220 to Qantas Link. Oh, my gosh. Uh, there's so much that's happened. Far out, man. Yeah, there's been so much that's happened. I think that We caught that will, in time, uh, though. You know, it hasn't had it, it has not had its inaugural uh, commercial flight yet. It's 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 an no, inaugural it's not, flight. No, it's just, it's doing just training. done some little training routes between Canberra, Melbourne, Canberra, Sydney. I think it's been up to Brisbane once or twice now. Mm. Um, I think that that aircraft will completely change the way, completely change the route structure of Qantas Link in terms of the the, the places they're allowed to operate to from the capital cities they're allowed to reach out further into smaller remote towns because obviously the added range of the a220 and the additional fuel efficiency of it meaning that you have to fill less seats to turn an actual profit so cool yeah that aircraft is so cool oh man can't wait to fly on it again hey well actually nick before before we call it uh time on this episode yeah we did put out to the instagram if anyone had any questions for us to discuss on the podcast. And I actually got a question uh, from uh, from Jenny. And she wants to know something very specific about the function of uh, the the windows on an aircraft. And I thought we uh, – it's, a, it's a quite a good one to answer. So I'll uh, point, put the question to you, see what you have to say about it. Why do they make you put up the window shades for takeoff and landing? They say it's a safety thing, but I don't get it. 
why do you put up it, it is a safety thing um it's uh obviously it's 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 about sort of spatial awareness um so you obviously can look outside the window and know what's sort of happening it's that that that's how i sort of um come across it as um, i remember if, if mitch had, talking about this too also if, if you if you if you had an emergency and the window shades were down you know some sometimes you know cabin crew will need to come around and actually look at what's happening outside aviation can be very simple sometimes just identifying an issue can just be as simple as just looking at it. it there doesn't need to be sort of much more diagnosis from that but as far as i'm aware it's got to do with obviously spatial awareness being able to identify the problem by just looking out there but it's also got to do with uh adjusting your body to the surroundings and the light which is why at night if you've ever taken off the cabin crew dim the lighting as well as having the windows open because if the if the if the uh if the lights within the aircraft were on full brightness um and an incident occurred and all the lighting switched off your eyes would take a bit of time to actually adjust to the new situation so it's so it's just to sort of i believe the window is kept open just so you know your body and your you know your you know your eyes you, you know, your senses are, are, you know are in the same sort of how do, how do i describe it they're in tune with what's actually going on on the outside basically i i, I don't yeah, it's an interesting question. I'd say that the shade, the window shades are left up so that not only that passengers can acclimatize to the outside conditions, which uh, it actually, uh, funnily enough, goes back to the Japan Airlines crash, the idea that uh, everyone needs to be acclimatized to what's happening on the outside before they evacuate. Uh, that's exactly the point of the window shades being up so you can see what to expect. And it, it genuinely, uh, generally, it will allow someone to better accommodate to what's happening because they know what to expect. Uh, to that and then also as both Mitch, uh, first officer Mitch and uh, cab manager Andy have mentioned in uh, different capacities on previous episodes, uh, the other element of uh, having the window shades up for takeoff and landing is, as you said, so that uh, cabin crew can see and and passengers can see what's happening on the outside of the aircraft. Uh, funnily enough, one misconception is that um, pilots can easily see the the full uh, breadth of, the, of both wings, including the engines, from the cockpit. Uh, no, no, <laughs> no. So the result of that is they they often rely on the cabin crew and passengers to be able to point out any issues and then relay that to them so that they know what to do or the the best course of action. Um, you know, a pilot. It took. Again, another example, it took pilots a moment to realize that, that their wing was on fire of their aircraft uh, on this gel aircraft because it took a moment for the message to be relayed to them. They can't see what's happening uh, and, and they can't see what's going on. And you know, some of you are probably thinking, well, they would have heard a big crash, bang, you know, some sort of thing. But, uh, I mean... There's a crash bang when you when the wheels hit the ground of the of the runway, mate. Like it's it's the same same deal, and I'm sure there's uh, many different factors that led to them taking a moment to realize what had happened, and that's uh, another great use of the window shades there uh, being up. Is uh, then when it came to evacuating, as I said, all passengers and cabin crew are aware of the surroundings of what's happening outside. They know what the the best uh, emergency uh, exit doors to use are, and uh, they get everyone safely off board so 
I would say, yeah, definitely a safety issue, as you said, Nick, for, for that one. Yeah, yeah, good question. Yeah, just to summarize, yeah, just spatial awareness. Um, and obviously that relates to safety in terms of how prepared you are in an evacuation. But very good question there. Hopefully okay. I answered, hopefully we answered it. Yeah. To the best of, you know, okay. to, to, to I have, you'd want it. I have two more questions. Uh, the next okay. one, I think you could definitely answer this. Okay. okay. And this one comes from uh, Sam, and he asks, will we ever see another aircraft like the A380? I think he's specifically talking about the double-decker function. Yeah. Um, I am a believer of the A380. Um, more, obviously, I love flying on it. Um, I love the comfort of it. Um, but I think economically, a lot of airlines have written it off. Um, you've got airlines like Qatar that have publicly stated that the A380 has been the biggest mistake that they've ever made. And I don't necessarily agree with that statement. I think they ultimately utilized it wrong. Yeah, you got to go all in have, or not at all, really. Because um, you've got airlines like Emirates and that is the backbone of their fleet. And they have made tremendous profits out of it. And I believe that the A380 is key to solving a lot of the slot congestion issues that we're seeing in many of the major airports in the world, That's such right. as Heathrow, such as JFK, uh, such as Paris, you know. And aviation will always continue to grow. Yeah. And we can't just keep adding more flights. Nope. Adding more frequencies because it looks great on a piece of paper, but where are we going to find the slots in all the airports that realistically people want to go to? You can talk about flying to smaller airports, but how are you going to fill up that many people to go to those airports? That's why I still believe in the hub and spoke model because it works. You mm. can you can you can fill up an aircraft, fill it up to a to a smaller destination. And the people on that aircraft haven't come from one destination. That It's sort of feed traffic. Um, and that's where an aircraft like the A380 comes in really handy. Now, admittedly, the A380, that thing is now over sort of 25 years, I say, from its first conception. It is getting on a bit in terms of age. I think it just needs to be revitalized a bit. You know, you need yeah. new engines on it. To, 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 to increase efficiency by about sort of 15 odd percent you can you can change the wings on it you can you can redesign it you can you can make more more uh more of the aircraft from from composite features which obviously brings down the weight of the aircraft which obviously enhances the efficiency of it um i i as weird as it may look I believe one day there will be an engine manufacturer that will actually allow an aircraft the size of a 380 to run on two engines. Um, as far as I'm concerned, one of the premises for the A380neo was that it had the it had the four engines for when it needed it most, obviously on takeoff when it's using most of its thrust. But in the cruise, switch two of the engines off. Yeah. Put it on two. Crazy, isn't it? It's stuff like that, which I think, considering that you're carrying a lot of people on this aircraft, the actual carbon footprint per person 
would be less than that of flying something like a Dreamliner. That's right. Um, so yeah, just to answer your question, Sam, I think maybe Tom might have to might want to add something to it if he wants to. I believe, yeah, I believe that we will see something like an A380 in the future. We have to. Um, it solves a lot of our issues, and in terms of us as customers, it brings prices down. Yeah, we we want we want aircraft like the 380. We want that mm. because we want more availability. We want more capacity. It brings prices down, and it's basically basic economics. Yeah, uh, d- demand versus um, sort of. It's um, a brilliant answer. Yeah, I, I can't even think. Demand, demand versus availability. You've, yeah, you've answered forward. it really. That that's uh, you've answered it. That's exactly right. Uh, I think. I completely demand agree with you. for supply. My goodness, I can't think. There Sorry about that, Sam. Ended it wrong there, but yeah, supply and demand. Basically, yep. if you got big, big, big supply, big demand that matches the demand, it's all good. But the minute that the demand gets too much and the supply is not there, like we're seeing at the moment, that's why the prices have been so incredibly high. And an aircraft like an A three eighty fixes all of those issues. Yep, I don't need to add anything. You've just uh, that's perfect. It's exactly right. The last question comes from uh, Captain Michael, and he oh, he just wanted to know when's the next episode. Well, here we are. Here it is. That's the answer. Here we I, are. <laughs> I want to add one more question. Actually, yes, go please. Um, it was. Let me just get it up. Um, it was from. It was from Christos's mate Jimmy. Now, he was saying... Jimmy Vung. That's right. He he was asking us whether we prefer the DC-10 or the Lockheed TriStar. I don't have the actual question up. I'm just remembering from what I saw the other day. So apologies, Jimmy, if I did actually get the question wrong. Um, I'm going to start off. I'm going to say the TriStar. I think it's, uh, it's, it's, hey, it's, just, a more <laughs> it's, it's just a more refined aircraft in every way. Uh, although saying that, I'm I'm not the biggest fan of of, of three engined aircraft at all. To be honest, yeah. uh, it's either it's either two or four. I think I think three engine aircraft have got a bit of a shaky past. Uh, you know, stuff like the MD11, not great. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. What, what, I don't know. What, what do you think, Tom? I, I'm I'm more of a TriStar guy myself, but oh, I'm I'm with you. I'm on. I'm uh, I'm Team TriStar. I'd even say um, the TriStar's exhaust mechanism for that third engine, the turbine exhaust, is uh, is sleeker. <laughs> like it kind of like the 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 actual um, third turbine on the tail of uh, the DC10 just goes all the way through the tail. It comes out the other side. It's, it's like someone's put a giant tube in the middle of the tail. It just looks weird. The uh, the turbine on the TriStar, the exhaust sort of travels downwards and out the out the uh, the the butt of the aircraft really, and um, I just think that looks cooler. I'm not basing it on whether how catastrophic either of them have been, but you're right, they've both been pretty ridiculous. Don't know whose idea it was to put a third engine in the tail. Just put four engines. Just just pull an A340, mate. Seriously, <laughs> it's just like come on. But look, it is what it is. You know, 727, there's another one. Yep, that's it. Yep, 727. Oh, now that is a classic. I mean, sorry, no, I'm not. I'm not. Boeing, you do not deserve my praise right now. I'm taking it all back. Taking it all back. 
<laughs> nah, no, they they no, they prefer they they deserve praise on their older aircraft. I mean, obviously, stuff like the seven four seven, which is iconic, the the original seven three sevens, the original triple sevens, they are absolutely insane aircraft. Um, I love the seven five seven. I understand people don't like it because it looks like a like a praying mantis sort of little pencil pencil little aircraft but i love that i just think boeing's older aircraft are good boeing's newer aircraft they need work done you know yeah in uh in quality control in terms of what they're doing i think they'll get there i think the innovation is there i mean looking at the new 777x cabin it's absolutely insane but it's just actually rolling that aircraft out into production making sure that people get to go on these aircraft and actually fly on them without having to worry about any safety related issue at all yeah yeah um, now well said i think we'll wrap it up there uh hopefully you guys Good, enjoy us answering your questions there hopefully uh we answered them as to how you would obviously want us to answer them um and send in your questions anytime if you got any travel related aviation related questions just send us a message on our instagram at radio runway pod and we will get around to that that's um it. that's it whenever we do the next episode well said well said we'll have to come back to you all with uh, a uh, a structure in the next episode and with that in mind nick i've got uh, got a wonderful sort of a teaser for you uh for next to episode you. that's right <laughs> uh, nick as you as you're probably well aware Sydney is about to get its second major aviation hub um, mm-hmm. out of construction, ready to go. It's a it's a non curfew um, restricted airport, um, and as a result, obviously that means uh, more opportunity for um, services to run overnight or um, cargo to expand throughout uh, Sydney as a as a um, aviation hub. And uh, that's all coming to us through the wonderful Western Sydney Airport, which is currently in, in production. And I've done my research, Nick. I, I've done my research and I've put together the list of what we can expect, the, the cool features, that, um, the, the cool, unique, uh, steady-art features that are going to be rolled out as part of this, uh, what the residents think of the airport, the, the noise map. I've gone, I've gone full ham, and I'm going to bring that all to, to you guys, the listeners, and uh, to Nick in the next episode. And who knows, maybe Ross will be back from his Honolulu adventure by then. He can join us for a wonderful discussion. But, uh, look, it's been wonderful to come back to you all. Uh, apologies for the break, as we said earlier. It's been a long time, but we've we missed you guys, and um, it's been fun to get back to aviation and, and chat all things that have happened over the past five months and I cannot wait to be back with you another two weeks from now with uh, the next episode, which we're still, I'm sorry, we're still calling episode four of season two. This is still season two. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is still season two. This is still season two. Exactly. We've been off for a while, but it's still season two. That's it. It's given, it's given you guys the opportunity to catch up on all the episodes you've missed. That's Let's it. just say that. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a, it's like having to wait like months and months for your new TV show season to come out on Netflix. It's like you know, it's worth the wait, the hype. You know. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. It's been a pleasure to be back with you. We'll see you in two weeks' time. Uh, like I said, uh, with a lot more to look forward to within the aviation industry, and hopefully with us another Radio Runway member. We'll find out and uh, get back to you. And uh, until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.